Would you bless the preaching of your word and help Josh to proclaim clearly and helpfully and help us to take these truths and apply them now in our lives tonight. In your son's name, amen. Amen. All righty. If you have your Bibles, let's go to Exodus chapter 5. Exodus chapter 5. Okay, once you're there, I want to see you raise your hand. Somebody who, let's see who gets there first. Well done. Juventus got there first. Some other people over here got it. I like it. What's going on? Okay, Exodus chapter 5. That's good. Okay, now once you're there, let's see. Keep your hand up. Keep your hand up in there. Still got people. Exodus 5. Exodus, second book of the Bible. Uh, chapter 5. It's the fifth chapter in that book. It, it's shortly after chapter 4 and immediately preceding chapter 6. Uh, there we go. Okay, now you got it. Good. Here's what you do. Keep your Bible, put it on your seat somewhere, and everybody stand up. Because you had a hot day today. It was like 20 degrees hotter than normal. If you're from one of my tri-city cities, it's like 50 degrees hotter outside than normal. I just need everybody to put both hands in the air like this. Hope you wore deodorant. Oh, good. Just everyone, just do one of these stretches right here. That's good. Let's get another one going that way. This is a weird cult movement thing we got going on. Everyone can kind of face that way. I don't know what you need to do. If you need to like stretch your leg out, maybe do some like lunges going that way. That's going to get some karate chomps on the back of the person in front of you just to loosen them up. You can turn around and go that way. That way, if anyone karate chomped you, you can karate chop them back. Look, it's, it's, there we go. Let's get everyone feel loose. Everyone's feeling better. Okay, go ahead, have a seat, have a seat. I just looked, I know, I know junior hires, what you have in energy, uh, you maybe lack in water weight. I have plenty of water weight. In fact, I'm willing to donate water weight to anybody that's looking for any. Um, and because of that, you were saturated, or you were, uh, you have all that water taken out of you in the sun today. And instead of, you know, filling up your body with nutrients, like, Water, you decide, like, oh, water sounds good. You know, it sounds better right now. Sour patch kids. And so you've done all sorts of terrible things to hurt your body. And because of that, you might feel sleepy. So you're going to do, I'm going to make sure that we are awake. So let's, let's recap a little bit. So Exodus, last night we talked about Exodus 1 and 2. And who can summarize in, like, five words what we learned from Exodus chapter 1 and 2 together? Girl in the yellow. What did we learn? Yeah. Like five words, what happened? Yeah. Yep. Boy. Boy. Oh, oh you're doing words. I like Pharaoh. Boy. Um. Um, I'll take it. <laughs> Girl. And then baby. Baby. And boats. I like it. Good. Five words, right? We learned about Pharaoh. We learned about God. And last night it was like showdown, throwdown between Pharaoh and God. God. Fighting against, or sorry, Pharaoh fighting against God. Good. Okay, this morning we learned about the meeting at the burning bush, and we learned that God has a name. What's his name? Yahweh. Yahweh. I am who I am, or I will be who I will be, or just I am, or Yahweh. In fact, when you guys sing hallelujah, uh, that is hallel, praise, Yah, the short version of Yahweh, praise Yahweh. There you go. You guys learned Hebrew. You didn't even know you did that. So it's, it's praise to God of who he is. Uh, that's what we learned. So, and what did God say he was going to do? He told Moses what? I have what? He says, I've come down to somebody. What did God say he was doing? Yeah. Uh, he's going to uh, bring the Israelites back to Yeah. God has come down 
to rescue Israel out of Egypt. There we go. That's where we are. Now, tonight we need to do some work. So I'm going to summarize chapter 5 and 6. We're not going to look at 5 and 6. We'll just look at Exodus chapter 5 in your Bible. Stick with me here. Exodus chapter 5, they go to Pharaoh. Let my people go. It's the famous saying. And in verse 2, Pharaoh says, Who's Yahweh that I should obey his voice? And Pharaoh, you guys know this story. Pharaoh doubles their work. He makes it harder for the people of Israel. He says, you people are lazy. In fact, he says, because you guys have been paying attention to lying words, verse 9. In other words, Pharaoh says, Moses has been lying to you. You are all lazy. Now you are going to work hard. And so the people of Israel get mad. They tell Moses, you've made us stink. You've made us odious in the sight of the Egyptians. Chapters 5 and 6 seem like a low point. In this story. And so as we get tonight, now you can turn to chapter 7. Turn to chapter 7. That's where we're at. Okay, so we've already had this first meeting. And now we get into chapters 7 through 10. And because I know I need to keep you guys awake, you don't know what the, the, the sun baking does to slow you down, I'm going to start you off with a poem. A little poem. Do you guys like poems? Who likes poems? Who likes writing poems? Who has a poem that they've written that they'll share with us right now? I'm just kidding. We won't do that to you guys. We'll, we'll share that later, uh, preferably after small group time. Here's a poem for you. I discovered this in my deep research into the book of Exodus. I found a poem about the book of Exodus. You ready? It goes something like this. So you think you've got friends in high places with the power to put us on the run. Well, forgive us these smiles on our faces. You'll know what power is when we are done. Son. <laughs> so that's not really an old poem. Go to the next slide. Those are lyrics from uh, Prince of Egypt. Uh, you can't really see them. But, uh, that's, that's Hotep and Hui that sing that song. There they are. They're not in the Bible either, but man, you guys can see that kind of well, right? You can see that more or less? Okay, we're doing well here. That's good. So you can see that. So that's this, th- this song in the Prince of Egypt. You can get those guys out of here now. And the reason why I bring that up is twofold. Well, that's uh, from the song, You're Playing with the Big Boys Now. And uh, my three-and-a-half-year-old daughter, when she saw Prince of Egypt for the first time, that, for some reason, immediately became her favorite song. As she walked around the house menacingly going, You're playing with the big boys now. Um, so, and it's, a, it's an interesting song. It's a catchy song. But I actually think it might be the most accurate song in the movie. Because what you have... In Exodus 7 through 10 is this sort of showdown between the gods of Egypt and Yahweh, the God of Israel, the one and only true God. I mean, the Egyptians had gods, you've got to understand this, for everything. They had over 2,000 gods that they believed in. Uh, how many of you, your parents like it when you clean your room? You like it? Yeah, that's good. That's good. And you maybe have heard the expression, there's a place for everything and everything needs to be in its place. Yeah. You've heard this before. Yeah. Okay. So in Egypt, you might say something like there's a God for everything and for everything there is a God. I mean, these people had gods for everything. They had a God for magic and medicine. They had a God named Hathor. She was a goddess of music, dancing and drunkenness. Three things not allowed at the Master's University. So we'll talk about that later. They had a god of letters and writing. They had one goddess who protected against venomous animals. Many of the gods were protectors. And of course, the most powerful god was a god named 
Ra, who was the god of the sun. He had the head of a falcon. He was sort of uh, like Pharaoh's personal god of personal access between Pharaoh and the rest of the gods. And in the movie, the song is silly. It's a sort of battle. But what you have in chapters 7 through 10 is sort of the main event. If chapters 1 and 2 were this uh, commercial for an upcoming boxing match, chapters 7 through 10 is the actual bout. It is the throwdown here. And that's what we're going to have in chapters 7 through 10. Uh, we see the plagues. The plagues on Egypt. Now, four chapters. How many of you are eager for me to read all four chapters straight through right now? Wow, you guys are awesome. I'm not going to do that to you. Here's what we're going to do. Can we make a covenant? How about we make this covenant? If I read the first 13 verses and you turn to all the other verses that I ask you to later, then we could do that. Does that work for you? So we'll read 13 and I'll just have you kind of flip pages. All right, we got this, homies. Let's do this. Verse 1, chapter 7. Let's read 1 through 10. Let me tell you what's going to happen. Chapter 7, 1 through 13 is like a sneak preview of how the plagues are going to go down. Chapter, the rest of 7 all the way through chapter 10 are the 9 plagues. And then chapters like 11 and 12 is the 10th plague. We'll look at plagues 1 through 9 today. That's what we're going to look at. So let's, let's go here. Chapter 7 of Exodus, verse 1. It says, Then Yahweh said to Moses, See, I make you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh that the sons of Israel... Sorry, sorry, to let the sons of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, that I may multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. When Pharaoh does not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the sons of Israel, from the land of Egypt by great judgments. The Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. When I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. So Moses and Aaron did it as Yahweh commanded them. Thus they did. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron was 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. Now Yahweh spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, when Pharaoh speaks to you saying, work a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh, and thus they did just as Yahweh had commanded. And Aaron threw his staff down before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh also called for the wise men and the sorcerers. And they also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same with their secret arts. For each one threw down his staff, and they turned into serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. And yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He did not listen to them, just as Yahweh had said. Thus reads God's very word. Let's pray before we talk about this together. Heavenly Father, we talked about how last night that we need to know you. That the only way to receive eternal life is to know you and know your Son Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Lord, help us to pay attention to this very important passage. Help us to understand what it means to obey you and help us to hear the warning of what it looks like to disobey you. Lord, we came for a lot of reasons to the camp this weekend. I'm convinced that you have brought these students here to hear this passage. And so I pray you'd help us to be hearers of the word and doers as well. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
This passage is a section that we commonly know as the plagues. And usually in the movies, this is a really short passage. Right? It's usually like a 30 second, 60 second montage of bad things happening and everybody's sad and it's, and it's kind of over. But you notice I mentioned it, it's four chapters long. It, it takes up a bulk. I mean, there's more. We read last night two chapters. That's like usually 40% of those movies. These are make up four chapters of the book of Exodus. The other thing about this is there's usually often like a cartoonish vibe when it comes to the plagues. Like you'll read like a children's book and there's like frogs on the Egyptians' heads. And they're like, oh, that's gross. And the Israelites are like, ha ha, frogs. And we think it's this like children's activity. But as you really look at the plagues, you see that these are horrific and terrifying and absolutely devastating to the world's greatest superpower at that time. I mean, again, think about these. These are no laughing matter. They're weighty. All of the Nile, the source of power for Egypt, turned to blood. Frogs covering the land. Gnats and then flies. And then the livestock die. And boils over everyone's skin. And huge pieces of destructive hail and thunder and fire falling from the sky. And then darkness. And then the death of the firstborn of every family. The, the plagues are they're hardcore. I mean, the, these are devastating. And in these signs and wonders, we see that God unleashes His destructive power on Egypt. And we've been talking about the book of Exodus is about God's self-revelation. And in these plagues, what we see is that this is who God is. It's a picture of who God is. There's lessons about who God is. Again, the God we sing to, the God we obey, the God we pray to. We learn about Him through this, this powerful scene. And so here's what I want to do tonight. Rather than, than read all four chapters to you, what I want to do is I want to sort of give you an overview of the plagues. I want you to, to understand how you should think about these plagues and what happened here. Understand the, the flow, what's going on. And then I want us to take away lessons, lessons from the plague. So let's kind of do an overview, what happened, and then we'll learn five lessons from this. And I think you're going to see this is incredibly, incredibly important to your life, that you understand this passage. So yeah, let's do this overview. We, let's even just start with the word plagues. We often call them the plagues, but in Jewish tradition, they've often called them the ten strikes. Now, that's not like 10 strikes and you're out sort of thing. That's like to strike someone, to attack someone. As if to say, these are God's 10 attacks on Egypt. He attacks them and attacks them and attacks them and strikes them and strikes them and strikes them. It's God's war against them. Uh, and in verses 1 through 13 there of chapter 7, where you should have your Bibles, you kind of get like a preview, a trailer of how the plagues are going to work. Take a look at verse 3. Notice the, the word that God uses isn't plagues. He will, the word plagues is used later. It's okay. Don't like rebuke your four-year-old nephew that uses the word plagues. But what this is saying is it says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart that I may multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. And then again, later, verse 9, what Pharaoh's going to say, work a miracle. Now, why is that important to know that these are signs and wonders? Let me tell you why. 
I remember one time I was watching uh, the History Channel. And they were doing like the history of Exodus. And they tried to explain the science behind the plagues. And so they're like, well, let me tell you, here's how the water turned to blood. You see, there was like some algae that were like spawning during that time. And because of that, like the river turned all red. Oh, that's dead. You're all distracted by that. there. Pay no attention to the invisible screen with nothing on it. Um, right, so they're just like, hey, like the water turns red because of the you know bioluminescent algae, and then uh, from there, well, because the water turned bad, the frogs were like, we gotta get out of here, so they jumped on land, and then the frogs died, and that's why the flies came, and then they got bigger, and then somehow cows died, and then a volcano went off, and it went black, and that's like this, that was like the History Channel's explanation of the science behind the plagues, and that's like. That's pretty unbelievable, right? I don't think anyone would buy into all of that. The point is this. This is God's supernatural work. This is God's attack. This is a, there's no explanation for this. There's no science for the plagues. They happened because God attacked Egypt. Now, what's going on here? How should we think about what God is doing? Well, he says he's going to deliver Israel. Verse 5, right there. Look right there. It says, I will stretch out my hand on Egypt. I am going to Deliver them. And how does he do it? Well, take a look. Verse 10, we see that Aaron throws down his staff. It becomes a serpent. And then we see that the magicians, we don't, we don't know if there were two of them. We don't think their names are Hotep and Hui. Uh, but we see the magicians do that as well. And their staff turns into a serpent. People go, what do we do with this? Is this magic? Is this imitation? What's going on? We don't know. But here's what does happen. Though they throw down their staffs, Aaron's serpent, what? What does it say? His serpent, what? He swallows their staffs. Do you know what God is doing with Egypt? He's swallowing up Egypt. That's the idea. How many of you have younger siblings? Younger siblings. How many of you ever compete against your younger siblings in like sports or video games or just like life like who hits the button on the elevator you know those kind of things that's good and how many of you dominate your younger siblings all the time yeah more hands went up there that's amazing right okay go hands go down okay sometimes like maybe it's in basketball if you're a basketball player your younger sibling you know what they'll do is they'll start trash talking right and they say like no, i'm gonna beat you today and you're like you're laughing because they're funny and they keep pushing you're like okay and then at some point they cross the line with their trash talk and you go all right listen I am going to wipe the floor with you, right? And you just obliterate them, right? That's what God is saying when the serpent swallows up the other serpents. As if to say, this is not even going to be close. I'm going to utterly destroy you. It's God calling his shot with what's going to happen with the plagues. And that's exactly what happens with the plagues. I mean, again, think about the devastation of this. It says first, what's the first one again? Who can remind you? What's the very first one of these strikes and these attacks that happens? Yes. Go for it. You, yeah, right here. Yeah. First plague is what? The, the sea turns to blood. Yeah, the Nile turns to blood. And it doesn't just say the Nile. It says all the water, including the water in their jars, in their houses. Like the, the flimsy one made of, wood, made of wood and the really fancy ones made of stone. It all turned to blood. Right? That's, that's horrific. Okay, then you get frogs. Which some of you are weird and you like pet frogs. And you're like, you know, I, I think it's cool to have a pet frog. And... Sure, that's okay. You'll, you'll figure that out one day. But, 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 but like, you wouldn't want like tons of frogs. 
Like frogs, like in your house. Frogs upon frogs. And then like gnats. These little annoying bugs everywhere. And at first you're like, okay, well, I could deal with that. Those are all annoying. But then, but then you have the livestock dies. That's your food for the future. And then there's these painful boils, these sores, these scabs with pus and nast and stuff all over everybody. And then... God sends this hail. The livestock die and killed all the animals in the field. The hail comes through and, and wipes out all the people, all the rest of the animals that didn't die. Then there's these locusts that wipe out the crops. Check this out. You just lost all your meat and all your vegetation. And then there's darkness. Them wandering around in the dark. It's, it's very almost tomb-like what's happening. That's what God is doing to Egypt. In fact, it gets so bad that at the, at the end there, the, the Egyptians say, do you not understand what's happening to us? So in chapter 8, uh, the magicians are going to say, this is the finger of God. And then later, the, the people are going to say, do you, you need to do something, Pharaoh. Do you not understand that all of Egypt is in ruin? That this, is, this is bad stuff that's happening here. And yet... What we see again and again is that Pharaoh does not listen to Yahweh. Take a look at chapter 7, verse 13. Here we go. Everyone look at your Bible. 7 to 13. It says, Yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them. Look at chapter 7, verse 22. The magicians of Egypt, they were able to imitate with their secret hearts the works that Moses and Aaron did. So Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as Yahweh had said. And then chapter 8, verse 15, when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and he did not listen. You can jump to chapter 9, verse 12. It says that again, the Yahweh Pharaoh hardened, or sorry, <laughs> Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not listen. And again and again, no matter what's going on, Pharaoh refuses to obey. He refuses to submit. His world is falling apart, and yet he will not repent. And so Yahweh brings upon his plagues. He destroys Egypt. And they sort of progress, right? They get worse. And so the first three are sort of annoying. The second three make life hard. But the last three are just destroying all hope that they have for the future. Such that, like I said, they're almost like in the grave, walking around in the dark afterwards so that they cannot see one another. Meanwhile, by the way, the whole time, Israel, totally fine. If we were to read through it, you'd see that the plagues, you know, it strikes the animals in the fields of the Egyptians, but where the, where the Israelites lived, they were totally fine. Untouched, unharmed. So here's the question then. Why? Why did God do this? Why does this happen? And for us, what lessons should we learn? What lessons should you take away from the plagues? What should you learn from these ten attacks tonight, just the first nine? Well, I have five of them for you. Remember, uh, Moses later is going to become a preacher in the book of Deuteronomy. And... uh, and when we read the Old Testament, let me just help you guys with like reading your Bibles. It's more than just a history book, 
Right? There's an angle. There's a slant. There's something that the author wants you to learn through the stories that are being told. And you, young person, even though this book is 3,000, 3,500 years old, there is tons for you to learn from this tonight. Let's learn these five lessons. You write these down in your notes. Lesson number one is this. Yahweh is the matchless sovereign. We find out who the true king is. Who the real ruler of the universe is. And it is God. It is the God who has shown himself to be Yahweh. I am who I am. Psalm 24.1 says this. The earth is Yahweh's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein. And the plagues prove it. The plagues show to us that there is nothing in this world to which God doesn't say, mine. That it's all under me. That it all belongs to me. And that I control all of it. Think about His control in nature here. We see waters and small animals and insects and large beasts and the human body and the sky, weather, light, death itself. All of it is under the control of God. There is not one of those things that resists His will that doesn't submit to His will. And there's a real sense here of what's happening that, that God is showing His power over the gods of Egypt. That their gods are foolish. Take a look on the screen. This will be next time. But Exodus 12.12 says this. He says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. That's going to be the, the tenth and final plague. And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. In other words, he's saying like in these plagues, I'm showing that I am the true God and they're false. You might ask, why are there 10 plagues? Why are there 10 of them here? You know, that could be because, you know, there's 10 significant number. There's 10 commandments. Uh, But uh, but why? Why else could that be? Well, let me ask if, if you took the best team here, you know, Nebula, and you took another team, Pan Am, who's in last, Pan Am. You've got this. You will not finish last. I hope. We got this, right? And you're like, look, it's a one game showdown between the best team and the worst team. Who's going to win that one game? Nebula. Typically, you'd expect it's going to be Nebula, but anything can happen in one match, right? Anything, anything fluky could happen. You play a soccer game, 10 people just hide in front of the net, somebody scores a pen, and wins one nothing. Good job. Well done. So, but the reason maybe you might want to play 10 games is to see, well, who's really the better team? Let's do it again and again. And the reason there's 10 plagues is it's not like God just won fluky the first time against the river. And then he had like a fluky win with the frogs. No, just again and again and again, relentless dominance and destruction. God is showing that He's the one who's in charge. This is no fluke when He reigns over it all. Friends, that's who God is. He is the sovereign. There is none like Him. In fact, look at chapter 9, verse 14. 9, verse 14. God says, For this time I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Right? There is, friends, no storm that happens in life. No death that can happen in life. No good things that can come in life unless God decrees it. Unless God allows it. No rain can fall. No star can twinkle. Every flower that blooms does so because God is the one who says, Mine. 
And so let me just give you a quick application of this. You ready? A quick application of this fact that it's God who's in control is that you can be faithful. Remember, we just mentioned it in passing, but what does Pharaoh accuse God of in chapter 5? He says, pay no attention to lying words. God does not lie once in Exodus 7 through 10. He does not lie today. And so you can trust him. The liar in Exodus 7 through 10 is Pharaoh, as we will see. But this is a God who does not lie. And so you can believe his promises and you can act according to his promises because his words alone are true. And that's good news for us. Let's move to our second lesson. Lesson number two. Repentance is more than a confession. Repentance is more than a confession. Or you could even say repentance is more than words. I often think after summer camps, I love summer camps. I think this is like my like 50th camp or something like that. It's, I'm, it's, it's up there now. I've, I've been doing camps for a long time, going to camp since I was a student. And you always think like, man, what is a successful camp? What is a successful camp? And maybe a successful camp is your team wins or you have a good time or, you know, there's a, there's a girl you like and she actually like learns your name or like kind of learns your name, like your name's Brett, and she calls you Brent, and you're like, oh, I'll take a W there, you know what I mean? Like, maybe, that, maybe, that's, maybe that's a successful camp. But, but I know as a small group leader, as a pastor, like, we're always looking for change. And I know your parents are praying for you, you're looking for spiritual change for camp. And I'm just imagining, like, at camp, uh, one of you, after hearing a sermon, your response goes something like this. You say, I have sinned. Yahweh is righteous and I am the wicked one. And if you were to say something like that, I think people are like, man, that's just so great that you said that. And your parents would be so happy that you said that. And your small group leader and your youth pastors would say, that's so great that you said that. And do you know who said something like that? Pharaoh. Look at chapter 9, verse 27. Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron. And Pharaoh says, I have sinned this time. Yahweh is the righteous one. And I and my people are the wicked ones. Man. In Exodus, Pharaoh repents a lot. But repentance is more than words. Repentance is more than just one time feeling sad about sin. Repentance is more than just knowing that God is holy and that you're a sinner. Student, you need to know what repentance is. Because repentance is the only way to be saved. Repentance is a word that sort of fall out of favor today. But listen to what Jesus says. Mark 1.15 says, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In other words, you cannot follow Jesus. You cannot be one of His. And therefore, you cannot know God unless you repent. Repentance, then, 
is crucial to your spiritual life. Well, what is it? What is it? Well, repentance starts with acknowledging your sin. Repentance begins with a a change in your thinking towards your sinfulness. So take a look at Matthew 3 up here. I think I've got that for you. Matthew, or sorry, Matthew 5, verses 3 and 4. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. In other words, poor in spirit is this. Blessed are those who know that before God, they have no spiritual wealth. That they've done nothing good to honor God. That in their sin, every prayer they've done, every verse they've memorized has accumulated up to spiritual bankruptcy. That if God were fair with me, if I were to try to like pay my way into heaven, I would turn my spiritual pockets out and see that I've got nothing but a pocket full of sin. And that repentance then goes into mourning and being sad over your sin, being sad over your disobedience towards God. But repentance doesn't stop there. It is a life change. It is turning from sin and turning towards God. That's what repentance looks like. It's it's giving your life over to God. Submitting to Him as the King. Denying your own rule and reign of your own life and following Him. But student, what we learn from Pharaoh is there is a way to look like you're sad over your sin and not really repent. You know, 2 Corinthians 7 you can look up this verse later. It's, it's verses 10 through 12. Talks about that there is godly sorrow and there is worldly sorrow. In fact, let's turn there. Let's go there now. Second Corinthians 7. Hold your spot here in Exodus. We'll come back. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 7. This is important. It's in the New Testament. Because you need to ask the question if I'm really a Christian, am I following this God? And then, therefore, the question you need to ask is have I really repented? Have I actually repented in my life? You know, I know we've all heard scary sermons about hell and then we cried about it. But does that mean we've actually repented? So 2 Corinthians, let's go chapter 7 and then we'll take a look at verse 10. I think everybody is everybody there with me or you're with me or you're looking on your neighbor's Bible because this is important for us to look at. Okay, Paul writes this. He said that there is a sorrow that is according to the will of God. That produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. So notice there's a way to be sad over your sin that's good. And there's a a way to be sad over your sin that produces death. And so you might be thinking, well, how do I know which one's the good one? Here it is. You ready? Look at verse 11. Here's what the good one is. Paul writes, for behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything, you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. In other words, real repentance looked like zeal for obedience, love for God, allegiance to him. I would fear that in a room this size, that some of you have gotten really good at a Pharaoh-like repentance. Where you can turn on 
the waterworks. And you can make yourself feel sad so that you think someone will go, oh no, it's okay, God loves you. Only so you can go back to walking the exact same sin you were just walking in. Godly sorrow has tears followed by life change, which in the middle there is a commitment to the Lord. False repentance has tears and nothing more. Lesson three. Lesson three, the heart can be hardened. The heart can be hardened. I mean, this is a massive theological point. This is something to wrestle with, and you can find pages and pages of what's going on here, not only on this topic, but on other times in the Bible addresses this. But let's just let the Bible speak for itself. In, in Exodus 7.13, we won't look here. In 7.13, 7.22, in 9.7, it says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And then in 8.15, 8.32, and 9.34, it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. So his heart was hardened. And then other verses, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then yet other verses, 9, 10, 10.27. I can give you these verses later if you want them. It'll say actually, in fact, let's go back to Exodus. Look at 10.1. Everyone there? Exodus chapter 10. Look at verse 1. Then Yahweh said to Moses, go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart. So what do we do with this? What do we think about this? Is it Pharaoh hardening? Is it a secondary hardening? Is it God? What, how do we think about this? Well, I, I'll tell you one thing we do. We know that God is sovereign over rulers. The, the most powerful king, no matter how wicked he is, God rules over them. In fact, I think I've got a, a verse from Proverbs up there for you. Yeah, Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. It's the idea that later in Isaiah, it'll say that God will whistle. He'll whistle for other kingdoms to come to invade Israel. All right, because he, he rules over nations. He rules over kings. And there's something almost humorous here. Pharaoh thinks he's rebelling and he's just fulfilling God's purpose. Now, here's the question. Is God making Pharaoh sin? Is he the one making him sin? And the answer to that is no. No, James 1.13 says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So, so God doesn't put sin in Pharaoh's heart. But the word there for harden is a word there that sometimes is translated heavy, makes his heart heavy, or makes his heart glorious. In other words, he thinks he's glorious. But the other word is this, boldness. Boldness. So, so let's think about this for a second. Let me, let me illustrate. Um, you show up the day that you have a math test. And you've not studied at all. You just know it's doomsday. And you tell your buds, guys, I'm going to fail this test. And your buddies go, no way, man. You got this. Come on. You got your buddies are pushing you. And they're getting you fired up. And you're like, let's go. I got this. Or, again, I'll make fun of this so you know that you shouldn't date till you're 30. Uh, you'll have a guy that's like, man, I want to ask this girl out. I don't know if I should. And what does his buddy say? His buddies go, dude, you got this. And then he's fired up right for the rejection that he deserves. <laughs> 
And there's a way that your friends help make you bold. You were desirous, you wanted to do the thing, and your friends kind of put strength in your heart. When it says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart, here's what that's saying. Pharaoh really wants to disobey. He really wants to rebel. And God says, yeah, go for it. Sure, that'll go really well for you. So we often think that the way that God punishes us is going to be like fire from the sky. Or it's going to be something like the plagues that happen in our lives. But friends, Romans 1 talks about God giving people over to their sin. Like a boat that's, that's tied to the shore, but the water's pulling it down. The boat wants to go, and God just sort of knocks the rope off the pole and lets that boat go the direction that it wants to go. Friends, that's how sin works. Don't you see in this book the blinding effect of sin? That, that we think that people don't believe God because, because, well, God hasn't proved Himself. And yet you're looking all around here and there's these plagues happening. The sky's falling apart. And what? Pharaoh, what? He still doesn't believe. Why is that? But, you know, it's the same reason why some of you have gone to church your whole life and still don't believe. It's the reason why even right now some of you think, man, I wish I could be anywhere besides here in my life. Because unbelief isn't that you don't have enough facts. Friends, unbelief is a decision that you make. Unbelief is rejection of God despite everything else you see and know about Him. So no one here is an unbeliever because the mirac- they didn't get to see the miracles. They're an unbeliever because they have purposely rejected Him. And the way that God deals with unbelief is He says, go for it. Sure, that'll go really well for you. Actually, just to number four. Yahweh's judgment is devastating. Yahweh's judgment is devastating. Take a look at chapter 7, verse 18. We'll get to 7, 18 in just a second. But remember, they went to a t- or Pharaoh went and uh, rebelled against Yahweh, went to war with him. Do you know how God deals with those who fight him? With an equal and greater response. Remember, we, I mentioned in passing that in chapter 5, the people of Israel said, you have made us stink in the sight of the Egyptians. And yet chapter 8, verse 14 says, they piled up the frogs in heaps and the land began to stink. And in chapter 7, verse 18, when the Nile turned bloody, the water began to stink. In other words, God says, my people stink in your sight, Egypt. I'm going to make your land stink. You throw my children in the Nile, I'm going to make your Nile filled with blood. You kill my firstborn, I'm going to kill your firstborn. It's measured but greater response. 
That's what God is doing, friends. And this is a doctrine that, that maybe we're not always comfortable with, but this is no fluke. This is how God deals with His enemies. He will deal with them in justice. He will punish them. Now, in one sense, this is incredible comfort to the believer. Because if we belong to God, we cannot be harmed eternally. And yet, if you do not belong to God, friend, there's no one who's going to stand by your side when this judgment comes. Because you've made yourself an enemy of the King. That in your sin, in the sin that you've done repeatedly, in the sin that you've often laughed about, you've walked in the ways of Pharaoh in rebellion against God. Friends, this is the judgment that's coming. Now you might say, yeah, that's, that's true. But if I were like the Egyptians, I would, have, I would have figured this out. I would have said, okay, this is going really bad for me. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and side with the Israelites. And maybe you would have. There were some that did. But not many. And there won't be many in the future either. You know in Revelation, when God's pouring out His wrath on the earth, that, uh, that a lot of these same plagues double dip. So uh, again, you have water turned to blood, animals dying, locust, hail. You have outer darkness. Do you know what happens in Revelation 9? Take a look at this. You might think, well, I would have repented, or I will repent if I see that stuff. Will you? Look at Revelation 9.20. It says, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual morality or their thefts. You can add they did not repent of their pride. Did they not repent of their false Christianity? They did not repent of their other idols because... The threat of consequences is certain for the unbelievers, but it is no certain means to repentance. Just because you know the threat is coming doesn't make you say, I need to stop worshiping self and loving the Lord. And so young persons see this as a warning. That is the judgment to come for unbelievers and for false believers. Because this is who Yahweh is. Those who rebel against Him and make war against Him, He makes war against them. Finally, the fifth lesson from the plagues is we see Yahweh's goal is to be known. Yahweh's goal is to be known. Why so many plagues? We said that again. It mentions the Ten Commandments. It shows the supremacy. It, you know, he maybe beats the best ten gods of Egypt. But let me show you and see if you can catch a theme. Let's look at five more verses right there in your Bible. Everyone turn to Exodus 7. Give a quick elbow bump to the person next to you so they lock in. Exodus 7, 5. Here's what God is doing. You ready? Check it out. The Egyptians... Exodus 7, 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. Look at 7, 17. Thus says Yahweh, By this you shall know, Pharaoh, that I am Yahweh. Take a look at 8, 22. 
Again, speaking to Pharaoh. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people are living so that no swarms of flies will be there in order that you may know that I, Yahweh, am in the midst of the land. That God is doing this so that the Egyptians would know who Yahweh is. Not just that He is the one doing them, but He is the one God. He's doing this to make Himself known. And not just for the Egyptians. Take a look at chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Chapter 10 says, Yahweh said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh. I have hardened his heart. Perform these signs. Verse 2. That you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I made a mockery of the Egyptians, how I performed my signs among them, that you may know that I am Yahweh. And not just Israel wanting them to know it. Last one, chapter 9, verse 14. Again, did God need 10 plagues? Couldn't he be just like, you know, Thanos snapped and that would have just kind of wiped out all the Egyptians? He totally could have. 914. He says, for this time, I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people so that you may know there is none like me in the earth. For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you, your people with pestilence, you would have been cut off. I could have obliterated you by now. Verse 16, but indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name throughout all the earth. Friends, God takes the most powerful country in the world and uses it at a stage. See my glory. See my supremacy. On the one hand, that's an incredible motivation for missions. This is a God who wants to make himself known. In fact, there's a prostitute named Rahab who will be saved in Joshua 2 because she heard what Yahweh did to Egypt. But what we see is very clearly that this God wants you to know who he is. This is the God who is holy. This is the God who makes war with those who make war with Him. This is the God that sides with His people and remains faithful. Again, do you know Him? John 17, 3, our verse we looked at last night, this is eternal life, that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. There is no God like God. And He acts Not just so that people would know some stories about Him, but so that we would know Him and respond to Him rightly. Let's make sure we do that. Let me pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Lord, what a a heavy passage and what a warning this is. How sad would it be to see Your glory and to see Your character and to see Your power unveiled and unleashed and yet to not respond to it to reject it oh lord how horrible is it when we sin when we who have seen your glory in the scriptures and we who have heard of your truth don't obey you lord thank you for making yourself known help us to respond to you with worship with real repentance Thank you that we who are with you are protected by you, Lord. Lord, thank you for your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.